The perfect dining room table is out there waiting to be found on homedepot.com. No, you won't have to build it. Because now at the Home Depot, you can get everything from dining chairs to dinnerware. And with easy in-store returns, bring it back if you do decide to build one yourself. Save up to 25% on select dining room furniture, plus free and flexible delivery. Shop decor now at homedepot.com. More saving, more kinds of doing. Valid on select items online only, free delivery on select items $45 or more. Visit homedepot.com for more information. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined? rugged at the same time introducing the all-new rav4 hybrid 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful rav4 plus with its head-turning style and breakaway speed it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid the all-new rav4 hybrid toyota let's go places horsepower ratings achieved using the required premium melody gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher premium fuel is not used performance will decrease fellas i'm ready to get up and do my thing get into it man you know like I, you know i'm the man don't you can i count it off one two three four you're listening to the church politics podcast with michael ware and justin gibbony where you can get in-depth political analysis from a christian worldview transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square you're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the Ann Campaign and 4th District. We're excited to be with you. I'm excited to be with you, Justin. Uh, how's, your, how's your week starting off? Well, I'm feeling good. We're going to get into this later, but my bracket is in a good place. Um, so yeah. I'm, doing, I'm doing my thing there. And uh, yeah, no complaints, man. No complaints yeah. at all. It's, uh, I know, you know, I, I went home, we brought my daughter home to Buffalo for the first time uh, this nice. week and had just a blast. It was fun taking her to, uh, so, uh, you, you know this, but some listeners uh, might not know, uh, my wife and I are from the same hometown and went to middle school and high school together. So we, it was fun, you know. She's not, she's four months, my daughter's four months old. She's not going to remember any of it, but it was still fun taking her around to uh, some old stomping ground. So that's so what's up, man. I, I celebrated my uh, oldest son, who's five. Cooper is five years old. So we celebrated Ooh. his birthday this weekend. Yeah. And happy uh, birthday, Coop. Yeah. Bought him a new, a new basketball hoop outside. And, and uh, my, my dad accused me of getting it partially for myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we went back and forth on that, but we hooped uh, a good portion of the weekend. It was, it was a fun weekend. Oh, that's good. That's good. And then uh, earlier this week, uh, you gave the keynote at something called the Beloved Benefit. It looked pretty incredible. Uh, to tell tell the listeners about what that was about and and the message that you shared with folks there. Yeah, it was an awesome benefit. So some of the uh, some of the the community here through a benefit for community organizations on the west side of Atlanta. The west side of Atlanta is a part of the city. That has, you know, a lot of some of the lower kind of socioeconomic status and has just really had a hard time with development and all that stuff. And some folks got together to throw a real big uh, fundraiser. They raised uh, over five million dollars uh, for the West Side. Uh, wow. They had I think Steve Harvey was the host. You had folks like Ambassador Andrew Young that spoke. Uh, Bernice King spoke. You had Congressman John Lewis and um I was able I was asked to give the the keynote uh, to and there are probably over 2000 people there. It was in Mercedes Benz Stadium, which is the Falcon Stadium. Uh, yeah, it, it was incredible, man. I'm, I, you know, God is uh, is faithful. I was just so honored to have to take part in it, to take a part in it and uh, get some and campaign shout, shout outs in there as well. 
That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I, uh, yeah, I heard all kinds of good things and so glad that you had the opportunity and the folks were able to hear from you. Uh, I think we better just jump right in. We've been talking about this Mueller report for a while. You know, I, I have to say, I don't know if you feel same way. You know, I feel like uh, I, I took some time and went back to how we uh, discussed the report and how we looked at it. Not to pat ourselves on the back, but I feel pretty pretty good about the fact that, um, you know, on the show, we've been telling folks that this report is going to drop. It's significant, but we we never leaned out too far over our skis uh, and the Mueller reports. What we know about the Mueller report, I, I think, confirms that, that that was a good decision. Now, we're, we're going to walk through a bit of the report or what we know about the report on this episode. Uh, and, and I'm sure throughout this week, we're going to learn uh, more as the Department of Justice is able to take a look. But but here's here's where things stand. Mueller filed the report with the Department of Justice and Attorney General Barr on Friday. The Barr had the report for the weekend and sent a letter to the appropriate committee heads uh, over the weekend regarding the report. Quoting from the report, Barr writes that the report states the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. It's also clear from the Mueller report that uh, Russia did reach out, did attempt to collude uh, with with the Trump campaign, but that there it could not be established. Given the extensiveness of this report, I, I think we need to say that there, there aren't uh, sufficient grounds for the attack and critique of collusion. I think it's important to note, Justin, this special counsel did not come up empty-handed. Multiple indictments of officials close to the Trump campaign. We learned about things like the Trump Tower meeting uh, that Donald Trump Jr. took a part of, which is important. And the public need, needed to know that. Um, Mueller unveiled, uncovered significant things about the functioning of uh, the Trump campaign in 2016, and even how Trump was using, still pursuing business deals in Russia as a presidential candidate. But it's important to note, you know, there were folks saying as soon as this, you know, this report was going to be the death knell for uh, the Trump administration. And that does not seem to be the case. Uh, just the last thing I'll say, Justin, is Democrats are now calling for the report to be made uh, public. Uh, in Barr's letter to uh, the committee chairs, he notes that he needs to work with the special counsel to make sure all confidential information that has to remain confidential uh, is is excised from the report. He needs to make sure that information regarding ongoing matters is not included in what is released. Uh, this is going to be probably, uh, you know, the principal fight over, uh, you know, the coming days, which is how quickly and how much of the report will be uh, released. But there will be a, you know, a process. And obviously, Democrats are going to want that process to move more quickly. And and Republicans in general are going to uh, uh, probably be o okay with uh, the attorney general taking as much time as he thinks uh, he needs. Uh, Justin, I'll, I'll toss it over to you at, at this point. You, you know, again, without having the actual report in our hands, we do have this four-page letter from the Attorney General uh, and some reporting that's taking place. 
Is this about what you were expecting? And, and how do you think that, you know, Democrats should move forward, particularly in the House where they have, you know, the power to do investigations and follow up through their uh, through committees? I think you hit it on the head at the beginning in the way that we try to deal with this right now, what you're seeing on, online and just from a lot of people. And I think it's understandable is a, is a huge letdown. Right. Some people are pretty emotional about about um, this report, not really coming to the conclusions that they wanted it to come through. And, and we've been saying for a while that this whole issue, this Russia Trump issue is about the, the Mueller report, um, all the speculation all the daily bombshells, all the beginning of the end prophecies were worthless or really meant nothing unless uh, Mueller came through and said, hey, these are the specific findings and I do find collusion or conspiracy. We, we've been saying that for quite a while. So, you know, we saw a lot of the reporting had people really emotional about this. We took we made a deliberate effort not to be emotionally invested in what was going on and just to wait for the report. We thought that was the most responsible way to handle this. And I, and I think it, it showed to be true. Uh, when I heard one of the things, I, I can't say that I expected this, but one of the things that led me to believe it could happen was when Cohen, who's one of the guys who completely has told everything about Trump that he could tell mm. and was very close to Trump, said that he didn't know anything about collusion. Right. Um, when I heard that, I was like, OK, this, you know, this may not be what people are expecting it to be. Um, and, and what I want to tell people right now, because I know a lot of folks are emotional about this and, and I get it, is that everything that you're hearing, all the conspiracies that are coming out after this report has come out, you know, folks saying, but this could be true. This could happen. But he did this and he announced it. You know, he said something on television, all this, all the stuff that you're hearing. Mueller had that and more. Right. Right. Um, he had that and more. And a lot of people are going from let Mueller finish, let him do his job. He's reputable. Let him do what he has to do to now Mueller's part of some conspiracy. Now we're, we're questioning his veracity, right? You can't continue to do that. Right. Um, if, if he, if he's, uh, credible when you think he may give you what you want, then he has to be credible after he doesn't give you what you want. Um, and I think you do have to wait to see what's in the full report, but but let's not, you know, let's not just, you know, to rush to conclusion. And I know that's hard. And a lot of people are struggling with that. A lot of people were expecting something different. And I get it. But look, let's look at this investigation. Uh, this was a two year investigation. Right. Uh, Mueller employed 19 lawyers. He yeah. was assisted by 40 FBI agents. He issued more than uh, twenty eight hundred subpoenas. He executed five hundred search warrants, mm. uh, made 13 requests from foreign government uh, for, for two foreign governments for evidence, interviewed 500 witnesses and obtained 34 indictments. Wow. A lot of work was done here. This was a thorough investigation. And if I'm and if we're going to say that and it's you know, you need more than just speculation and what you want to to feel about this, to say that this was not done in the way that it should have been done. It may not have given you what you expected, but it was a thorough investigation and we have no reason to believe again that Mueller wasn't uh, doing it in a way that was honorable. So, I mean, and you hit it on the head. I think, you know, it was broken down into two parts, you know, rush there, there was Russian interference. So they attempted to influence the election, but there was no, there was not enough evidence to say, or there was, there's no showing that uh, they conspired with the Trump campaign to do so. Right. Um, and so when it comes down to this interference, there were two parts of that as well. It was the Internet Internet Research Agency, 
which was the Rus- Russian company that conducted this disinformation and social media operation to sow discord. And we've talked about that. So you can kind of go back on our podcast to see where we talked about that. And then number two was the computer hacking operation where they hacked the emails of Clinton and the Democratic Party. All that stuff came out really just to throw throw things into disarray. Yeah. Um, and again, Trump didn't participate in either of those. Right. So that that's the conclusion that was made. The second part of it was the obstruction of justice. They did not draw a conclusion on the obstruction of justice. But what he did do uh, and we haven't seen this yet. And this is what I think the Democratic Party and others want to see. He did set out evidence on both sides that speaks to whether there was obstruction of justice or not. So there may be evidence that it could have been evidence that there wasn't. But he left that up to the attorney general to make that decision. And right now it's looking like the determination was there was not sufficient information to say that there was obstruction of justice charges. Now, that doesn't mean that's 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 where that ends. But that's where Mueller that's where Mueller left it uh, for that decision. Now, when you put these two things together, you you have this uh, potential charge for Russian interference. Once they find that there was no interference, it does hurt the obstruction charge as well, potential charge as well. Because what you're saying is if there's no crime there, then what was he obstructing? It, it goes to the intent, right. right? There's no really need to obstruct something when you haven't done anything, mm-hmm. right? So that that actually does help the obstruction case to some extent. But but then still, someone could say, well, maybe he was afraid they were going to find something else within this investigation right. so that he wanted to obstruct for that reason. So j- just keep those things in mind. Um, I don't have a problem with people pushing to see the full report. What I what I what I will say, though, is that I do get why Barr is not just going to immediately put the full thing out there. He has to review it. It would be irresponsible for him. You know, I'm an attorney who's done some extensive um, uh, document review on serious issues. It would be extremely irresponsible for him just to put it out there without a serious review. Now, that doesn't justify him redacting things that shouldn't be redacted. I mean, you're going to have people are going to have to an- analyze what was taken out or what they think should have been in there. We can have that conversation. Sure. But to say it should just immediately be released. I'm like, come on, guys. So when it comes to the Democratic Party, uh, one of the things that I think they're going to have to do is come to terms with the fact that Mueller found that there was no collusion or conspiracy. And what that does is significantly decreases the um uh, the chance that Trump is actually going to go down for this, whether it be by impeachment or somehow go to jail. You're going to have to you're going to have to just kind of understand that and deal with it some way. It's not going to be easy, but folks are going to have to deal with that. I think the best thing that the party can do from here is to take that energy and to focus it on getting him out in 2020. Right. That's your best. That's your best option right there, because what's going to happen? I'm going to tell you, there are going to be people who are going to feed you stuff. They're going to keep you up all night. They're going to keep you upset about all this stuff. And you can go along with that or you can focus your energy somewhere else uh, because there will be things out there to keep you inflamed. I would suggest focusing on 2020, making sure that you get a candidate that's someone who's credible, someone who's competent and can really go out there and speak to the people uh, with a vision. That That's probably the best uh, thing to do after this report has come out. Yeah, I I agree. There have been all kinds of jokes, you know, on social media over the last two years of, I think I saw a cartoon where it was a husband and wife in bed and the the husband's uh, trying to run through the case and the the wife just turns over and says, babe, Mueller's got it. Like, like you don't need to be running your own side investigation. And I I think this kind of like conspiracy theory 
you know, uh, uh, trying to sleuth this out can be consuming for folks. And what it leads to is this sense that Trump is Trump has to be in office through some sort of illegitimate process when when we just need to come to terms with the fact that Trump is in office because he was elected. And the only primary viable way of removing him from office will be through the same way, through through the ballot. And so we should see the report, you know, depending on what kind of threads it leaves unopened. You know, I'm not saying, you know, Democrats should use the power that they have to investigate reasonable things, not just clog up the, you know, the arteries, you know, investigate what needs to be investigated. But, you know, the 2020 candidates should be focusing on policy. They should be focusing on the future of the country, not relitigating 2016, not relitigating, you know, this investigation that, you know, I think was set up in the best way possible to give the American people assurance uh, of, you know, what what the findings are. And, and we, we have those on Russian interference now. All right, let, let's take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, the, the brewing debate. Uh, speaking of how you win elections in this country, uh, we're going to talk about the brewing debate over the Electoral College. Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Four black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold-cut combo. Veggie delight. Four black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. All right, we're back at the Church Politics Podcast. And Justin, I was watching uh, this town hall that Elizabeth Warren uh, did and saw, was a little surprised by how robust and strong the reaction was when uh, she called for the Electoral College to be abolished. I mean, it was one of the biggest applause lines that she received. And uh, in part because of that, uh, there's been a conversation uh Online and you know many articles are written over just the last week or so, uh, making the case that the electoral college should be scrapped, that it's uh, undemocratic, and uh, you know a vestige of the 18th century, and that we uh, there's no reason to to hold on to it in the 21st. I have some thoughts on this, but I'm really interested in your in your take. Do, do you do you think that the electoral college should be should be scrapped and if so, you know, what should it be replaced with? 
Yeah, so I think there's some merit to that conversation. I, I get where people are coming from, so I don't think it's a completely arbitrary uh, argument that folks are making. Uh, but I'll get to it a little later. The The chances of that happening anytime soon are, are actually pretty low. And so let me, I guess we can kind of get into this conversation. As you said, you see Elizabeth Warren jumped on it. You see a lot of progressive writers saying we should in, uh, abolish the Electoral College. And technically, how all this breaks down is this. This is how it works. Uh, you don't you don't technically vote for the president directly. Right. You cast your ballots for electors um, from one party or the other. And they they vote for the president. There are five hundred and thirty eight electors and electoral votes uh, in total. And it takes two hundred and seventy of those votes for someone to become uh, the president of the United States. Each state has a certain number of electoral votes. California has 55. Texas has 38. And D.C. Um, actually has three, um, which is based on the U.S. census. And it's proportionate to uh, the number of senators and representatives in that state's U.S. congressional delegation. Right. So that's how many how many senators plus their uh, their representatives in their delegation. That's how many electoral votes that each state has. Um, because it's not simply a popular vote, right? A candidate can win the most votes around the country and then lose the election. And this is what happened to Hillary. And this is why this is such a big deal. And, and I, so I just wanted to break down that electoral college process, uh, which was established by the founders in Article 2, Amendment 12 of the U.S. Constitution. Now, people are saying, well, how did this come about? Is it serving its original purpose and all that and all those things? And that history is somewhat cloudy, right? There are a few factors that might have played a, a part in kind of creating the Electoral College. But basically, there were some compromises. Some people are, you know, some people would say that the, the southern states played a huge part in those compromises. And so you have compromises on one end. And then you have the fact that some of people say that the founders just weren't comfortable with a direct popular vote when it came to the president. And so they wanted to put an opportunity for Congress or others as representatives, because this is a republic, to weigh in on that vote if necessary. Now, the argument against it, and, and we talked about it just a little bit, is that this, you know, it's not democratic because it gives rural America an outsized influence and consequently kind of devalues the more dense, highly populated urban areas. Right. So areas that have a higher population, yes, their vote there, you know, they get more electoral votes, but it's not necessarily proportionate to how many people they have. Right. And so you have small, smaller states or rural areas that have an outsized voice and, and people say people are pushing back, especially with the election of Trump, are pushing back on that and saying that's not how it should be done. Those who support it would point to the fact that the smaller states in these rural areas would be completely ignored if we did not have the Electoral College. Right. Uh, and so it forces candidates to consider to some extent more uh, all of America. Um, we see that still doesn't completely happen, but that's one of the arguments for it. Um, now, what we have to understand is now I would say this. That's not necessarily the original t intent either, as we talked about before. Um, but abolishing this will not be easy. Right. So one way to go about it is you would have to amend the Constitution to change the process, which would take a two thirds vote in the House, a two thirds vote, vote in the Senate and three fourths of the states would have to approve it. In as polarized a, a, uh, a landscape as we have right now, that's just not going to happen. Right. Um, the second option would be the state option. 
And a number of states have come together and signed a pact that would give all their electoral votes to the winner of the popular vote. Now, I don't know if that would just, you know, that's just going to go along without any serious legal challenges, because basically what that means is a state could vote for the Democrats and then all their votes go to the Republican. That's not necessarily uh, uh, Democratic either. Right. So I don't see this ending anytime soon. I think there are some some good arguments against it because it's really cloudy as to why the founders did it and if that still should be applicable today. Um so we just have to see. But but let's be very clear that the reason that you see so much passion behind it, that Warren got the response that she got was because of Trump. Right. This just didn't come out of thin air out of nowhere. And now people are upset about it. It does have to do with the fact that Hillary won the popular vote, but is not president today. One thing we have to keep in mind when we have this conversation is both parties went into the 2016 election understanding the rules. Right. So it's not like anybody changed the rules and we can say it's unfair. But but I seriously doubt the winner would be saying it was unfair if, if the, the roles were changed. So just things to keep in mind. I think we really need to look at it. I wouldn't I wouldn't mind a committee coming together and saying, hey, let's really look at if this is uh, somehow throwing the democratic process off, because I do think there's an argument for that. Uh, and it needs that we need to look into it. But I, I think that's going to take some time either way it goes. I'm open to looking at it as well. You know, I think I'm I'm more interested in reform around, you know, when we talk about electoral reform, I think, you know, how congressional districts are drawn, looking at ranked voting, th- those are more exciting to me and more more grounded in what's actually corroding our 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 democratic institutions. You know, it's not just about empowering smaller states and rural areas. You know, Ross Douthat has a column out this week uh, around this issue. And he points out that actually, in his view, the Electoral College pushes folks towards, uh, pushes campaigns and and our politics uh, towards a a regional approach that uh, if you look at how Trump won, it's not by racking up all the small states over, you know, over bigger states. It was actually he won some pretty big states. He won Pennsylvania that has Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and, and uh, you know, major cities. He won uh, Wisconsin and Michigan. I mean, these aren't obviously they have rural areas, but uh, but but, you know, he didn't win by racking up just north, you know, the Dakotas and Montana. It was actually through the Rust Belt that he won. And that push and pull of our political system means that, you know, in a properly functioning system, you know, the Democrats will be looking at the Rust Belt in 2020 and thinking about how they build a broader coalition that's bigger than uh, just getting 50% plus plus one uh, vote. Uh, Dautha actually quite reasonably in this column, his major question is whether we have a properly functioning politics that would allow for that anymore, that whether whether there are the incentives in the system or whether uh, our political parties are responding to the incentives in the system to, to, to react to losses in the way that traditionally they would have, <laughs> or, or if we have a system that's become so tribal, so polarized, uh, so focused on a base turnout that our uh, that our parties just aren't able to react and reform around losses in that way. So uh, I, I'd recommend that article to folks. I, I do think it's an important conversation, but but I, I like some of the incentives that the Electoral College puts puts in place. I do think it creates a system where parties have to be 
national where parties have to be looking at many different types of voters. Uh, I'm, I'm concerned about what's what scrapping uh, a system in the middle of the game, so to speak, uh, what that would do to basic trust in our institutions. So it, it's such an interesting uh, conversation. J- Justin, just to wrap up this section, are there any major sort of electoral reforms that you think of when when you say you know this should be at the top of our list if we're if we're really going to go about restoring faith and confidence in in how our elections work yeah i mean you mentioned it i think the ranked voting conversation needs to be a serious conversation that we have that allows people not to just vote for the extremes but maybe i can vote for more than one person or rank rank the people that i like i think that would be I don't know why we're not having a, a stronger conversation about it, maybe because the parties don't don't necessarily like it. But but certainly that, that needs to be talked about. We do need to talk about our districting, how what we allow through re- redistricting. Uh, when we talk about redistricting, it's important to understand both parties have taken district lines and made them all crazy. So it's not just one party that's done it. And if you look back at it historically, it's been done by both parties, whether you want to call it gerrymandering or whatever. That's not something that one party has a monopoly on, but it is something that we should stop from happening. So yeah, I, I love the ranked voting conversation. It's just not something that's really got to the top of the conversation. I, th- I think it should though. You know, everything's about 2020. <laughs> you know, everything's about 2020. Right, exactly. So, exactly. so, you know, th- that's an important lens for folks to be viewing all of this through. The reason why a lot of people are having the electoral college conversation now is because it sows grievance about the fact that Donald Trump is our president in the first place, which, you know, there are many reasons to be uh, grieved about that. But it's important for folks to understand that, as Justin laid out, the, the pathway to making this change isn't quite clear to too many folks. There is the state effort going on. But if you ask most people, you know, is this something that's that's going to happen in the next 10, 15 years? They, they probably say, uh, no, it's 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 a long shot. And so we need to make sure that we're, we're focused on things that can actually improve people's lives, not use politics as just this way to, uh, to play out sort of, again, to relitigate old fights and try and, you know, set the table in a way that best suits uh, our, ourselves and our causes. We're going to take uh, one more break. When we get back, uh, we're going to discuss an, a really interesting article on energy and how states have uh, gone on to try and uh, take on fossil fuels and, and replace fossil fuels. And then as Justin said, we're going to talk March Madness a little bit to close out the show. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and, and Justin, you sent uh, this week this this interesting article over at Forbes uh, by uh, Michael Schellenberger about this environmental progress report. Envir- environmental progress is a, is an organization that that uh, that does research and advocacy around uh, around environmental issues, and they found that had California and Germany 
invested $680 billion into new nuclear power plants instead of renewables like solar and wind farms, both California and Germany would already be generating 100% or more of their electricity from clean energy sources as opposed to fossil fuels. The, the, the report goes on. The findings are that it had California spent $100 billion on nuclear instead of uh, wind and solar, it would have had enough energy to replace all fossil fuels in its in-state electricity mix. That, that is not how things have gone. You know, this is one of those stories, Justin, we, we like talking about these these conflicts between, you know, the best intentions uh, and results that don't quite match up with the intentions that you could you could have just the absolute right motive. Um, but that doesn't always mean that in hindsight, you're not going to be wishing that you didn't make a different policy decision. Now, there are there are critiques of nuclear power that you know should be on the table. So that there might be some folks who who would say even if you could replace fossil fuels using nuclear power quicker than wind and solar, that's still not the best way to go. But this this is especially when you know when climate change is such a pressing conversation. You have folks saying, you know, we only have, you know, 10 years to to turn this ship around. This seems like a relevant debate. So, uh, so just what, what did you think of when you when you saw the story? And, and what do you think it tells us about public policy? Yeah, well, you know, on this show and then the end campaign, just generally, we are concerned about creation care. We do think that we should be good stewards uh, when it comes to the earth that we live on and that we should do everything we can do to make sure that we are taking care and, and respectful of, of, of what's around us. Uh, and so we do emphasize that. This conversation is an interesting one for the re- very reason that you mentioned. People are so strident when it comes to this conversation because they see a serious problem. And I think we can all observe that there is a problem that needs to be addressed. What I'm seeing it is and why I thought this article was interesting is that I don't know that the solution that we know what the solution is. And so while we're being somewhat strident about it and uh, very serious about it, we haven't necessarily come to a solution that is actually clear. Um, And that's okay, Right. That doesn't mean that we don't care. That doesn't mean that we should move forward with what we know. But in this conversation about renewal, renewables, is this the best way to go? You know, when you talk about solar and wind, are they efficient as we need to be? And are they worth as much investment as we're putting into them? Some people would say absolutely. Yes. And so in this article, Michael Schellenberger who Time Magazine called a hero of the environment, just so you know, this isn't some you know gas guy that's coming in and saying, hey, renewables are worthless. He, you know, His organization, Environmental Progress, came out with re- this report saying we need to take a look, uh, a closer look at nuclear. Instead of shutting down all these nuclear plants, which has gone on in California for quite a while, California is actually uh, hosting a global climate action summit. And within that summit, there's no conversation about nuclear energy. And so Michael Schellenberger is saying that's a that's a problem, because if you guys were to use nuclear energy in California, in Germany, like they do in France, then you would actually be very much closer to being clean than you are now. And because you're using sources that aren't as uh, efficient or just aren't uh, fully baked to where, you know, they can give us all that we need and kind of replace everything that we need them to replace. Hmm. You're actually 
getting further from some of these goals. Whereas, a, you know, a country like France and some, you know, places that aren't afraid to use nuclear power and aren't try- trying to just shut down their nuclear plants are getting closer to those goals. And we just need to have an open conversation. I think sometimes what happens, Michael, is we become pot committed to certain solutions and we just because we've invested so much and because we've talked about it so much that we close off other solutions that might actually be better. So I don't I don't have a conclusion here of this isn't a space where I'm confident enough to say, absolutely, it should be these power plants. But the conversation is ongoing. And what I am starting to figure out is that the conclusions that people have drawn aren't necessarily the full story. And there's more conversation that needs to be had. So that's why I thought this article in Forbes would uh, be a good one for folks to take a look at. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a good one for folks to discuss in their small groups or, you know, around the kitchen table. And it, it, you know, it just shows even these policy causes that are projected out as, you know, fundamental moral questions, right? Like the 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 sustainability of the planet on which we all live, even the policy solutions to those are sort of susceptible or, or a result of a balancing of competing interests and perspectives. So, you know, it's even on these clear, you know, what what some might consider to be clear moral questions. Well, maybe nuclear power is less stable or, or maybe we can create more jobs with wind and solar than with nuclear. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's not just about saving the planet anymore. It's not just about getting off fossil fuels. It's economic interests and it's the environmental implications of not just carbon, but of nuclear. These debates that, you know, we put out pithy tweets on and that we send out hashtag, I believe in science. They get a lot more complicated when you when you dig below the very surface level. And uh, and that's why I love this story. So, so again, this is a Forbes article had they the headline is had they bet on nuclear not renewables germany and california would already have 100% clean power and it's just worth a read again we're not endorsing everything in the article but it does raise some some really important civic questions just to, uh before we head out i have to tell you thursday friday especially thursday did not go so well for me <laughs> in my bracket I heard uh, <laughs> my my bracket did recover o- o- over the weekend though to like middling. But uh, h- how are you looking? I mean, my major problem uh, is I I put in uh, a-, a bunch of my chips with Marquette. Uh, I I've, I I was I was hoping that Marquette would would make it uh, two three games deep. And, and that, that didn't happen. Come on, man. <laughs> that, that didn't happen. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, America's largest mortgage lender. Let's talk credit card debt for a minute. If you feel you're carrying too much of it, you're not alone. The average household in the U.S. carries over $8,000 in credit card debt. Ready for some good news? With a cash-out refinance from Quicken Loans, you can quickly and easily put some of the equity in your home to good use by paying off a lot of that high-interest credit card debt. A great way to take cash out is with our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 4.375%, APR 4.65%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN to learn how taking cash out with a 30-year fixed mortgage might be the right solution for you. 
And for a record nine years in a row, J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in the nation in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. For J.D. Power award information, visit jdpower.com. Rate subject to change. Pay 2.13% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 3030. Hey, uh, on the plus side, you know, just to be, you know, uh, devil's advocate to myself, uh, I did pick Oregon and UC Irvine and then Oregon beating UC Irvine. So I feel pretty good about okay. that. Okay. All right. But how, how, are, how are you doing? Well, you know, I hate to brag, but I am happy to report. <laughs> I'm happy to report uh, that my bracket is strong to very strong. And in fact, I'm uh, I'm in first place in my pool hey. uh, that I'm in with some friends. And, and I expect, you know, I have every expectation that I will be victorious this time around. <laughs> I'm in a good place, man. And, uh, and, and, and to be winning it again, I got Duke winning it. So okay. I was a little nervous last night. I'm not yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna lie about that. I was a little nervous last night. And it's funny, man, because these days I don't have near enough time to watch enough college basketball <laughs> to really make educated guesses about who's gonna win. Right. I feel like back in high school, back in undergrad, I felt like I knew every team. I understood the matchup, the mismatch, you know, how the matchups will work out. Yeah. Today I don't I don't really have all that. But I, I made a tweet yesterday, or I'm sorry, this weekend, maybe it was Thursday, uh, basically saying encouraging the uninformed bracket filler outer like myself <laughs> to feign confidence, man. To yeah. talk trash anyway, like don't be, don't let your ignorance steal your joy. Was the tweet uh, because you should still be able to talk talk trash. Don't let your lack of knowledge stop you from enjoying the tournament and really trying to tear down those around you who you're playing against. Because that's, I mean, that's part of it, right? Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and this all plays a part in what I call, and I, I think I've talked about it a little bit on here, but hadn't gone completely into it. My sports tribalism theorem, uh, <laughs> which is that. People are naturally tribal, right? Yeah. And I think politics is a terrible place <laughs> to act out on that tribalism. However, sports, the other is hand. A, yeah, <laughs> sports is a great place for tribalism, right? Yes. Sports, I think sports best serves society as an outlet an outlet for this innate tribalism. Like sports fanaticism is the perfect place to release your inner you're, you're, you know, your most uninformed, raw and based <laughs> tribalism, right? You, you don't need to be reasonable about it. Uh, you don't need a reason to like a certain team other than they're in your area or there's some other reason that you identify with them. You can just support them. Yeah. You don't you don't even have to. They don't even have to be a quality team. Right. <laughs> but you can go ahead and be the most rabid fan and support them unconditionally just because you chose to do so or just because you identify with them for some reason. So you don't have to be rational. You don't have to be logical. You don't even have to be consistent or intellectually honest in your assessment and support of them. Oh, you can just great. support them at all, all costs. Right. Like and that's in a way, that's what tribalism is about. Right. It's not about, you know, logic or really serious convictions other than the fact that I just like this team. So while being uninformed and rabid and supporting a certain party or a politician just because is a terrible thing to do to be tribal in the civic space, I think is a terrible idea. It's perfectly fine when it comes to sports. And in fact, I think that's sports' greatest contribution to society. Now, this theorem, I want to be clear, a disclaimer, this theorem does not condone sports violence, intimidation, or harassment. <laughs> but everything else is pr pr pretty much fair game. And I'll give you an example of it. Any, I don't, again, I don't have time to watch in the NCAA basketball that much. I don't have time to watch the NBA as much as I would like to. Love the game of basketball. Yeah, right. I just don't have time. 
But there's not a time that I see Pastor John Amuchekwa or Pastor Dehadi Lewis who love who love those sports as well. And I'm not talking trash about their team. So if I see Anwuchekwa, I'm talking trash about the Houston Rockets. Even if even if I know, you know, their lead player is scoring like 100 points a game, I ain't really even watched the full game of those cats. I'm going to be telling him why they'll never win the championship. And it's the same thing with Dehadi Lewis when I see him. I'm going to be talking bad about the Lakers. It doesn't matter whether I'm informed or not. The point is I'm trying to tear down their favorite team and isn't that what tribalism is all about? Isn't that what that's sports right. fanaticism is all about? So that's my theorem, man. I'd love to hear I your thoughts it. on it, but I think that is the place for tribalism. No, I mean, I, I don't really have thoughts except to say uh, that your tweet blessed me and encouraged me and empowered me. Uh, <laughs> empowered you? Yeah. So I, 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 that was I'm, point. I'm grateful for that. And that's why, you know. I'm uh I'm all this week I'm going to be talking about the Purdue Boilermakers and how they're going to win the NCAA championship just like go. my bracket says. And uh you know, I don't know what a boilermaker is, but uh I think it's going to power us through. That you know, that is the good <laughs> alternative to uh nuclear and wind and solar, the boilermaker. There you uh, go. <laughs> so you I'm, go. I'm I'm riding that. So go Purdue. I also have Florida State going pretty far. Uh, and again, I, I've watched maybe five minutes of those teams play, but uh, but with your go ahead, I'm gonna be ride or die for there those. You go and, instead of not knowing what's going on in politics, but still being strident about it. Do it in sports. That's where you get it out at, man. I think the world would be a much better place if we used sports even more so for that an outlet for that tribalism. That's all I gotta say. Well. Hey, for our listeners, I think you've heard your charge. Uh, we want to see a lot of ignorant, <laughs> a lot of ignorant smack talk on social media about sports this week, and uh, and maybe lay off, uh, you know, the tweet threads on the Mueller report a little bit. <laughs> All right, friends, uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We've had a blast this week. Love being with you. We'll be back next week. Uh, have, have a blessed week. Y'all take care. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Four black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. The news on flavored e-cigs talks a lot about the technology and teen use, but parents need to know more about the dangers of nicotine. So know this. One, nicotine is a toxic poison that can rewire teens' brains. Two, it can increase mood swings. Three, it can limit attention and learning. So even when it tastes like candy, nicotine is brain poison. Go to flavorshookkids.org for more.